hey, it's Guy here, and we want to give you the chance to let us know what you think of the show. So here's how. You can fill out a short survey at npr.org slash tedsurvey. That's npr.org slash tedsurvey. All one word and all lowercase. You'll be doing us a huge favor by responding. So please check out npr.org slash tedsurvey. And thanks. Here's the show. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. Uh, Christian, were you, when you were a kid, did you get bullied? I did. Really, I'd been picked on by the same kid from first through eighth grade. He was just relentless. And he loved to really mangle my name. This is Christian Picciolini. It just got to be a lot. And I remember one day he had challenged me to a fight. And I had avoided it for years. Uh, And that day, I just just decided I was going to go face my fate once and for all. And um, when I met him at the playground after school, of course, the whole, you know, eighth grade class was there cheering him on. And, you know, he started circling me and talking trash. And then when he closed in, uh, instinct in me reeled back my arm through the first punch, knocked him down, gave him a bloody nose and then hesitated uh, for just a moment before I jumped on top of him and kept punching him. I had suddenly gone from this invisible nobody to somebody that felt a little bit of power. And eventually, uh, I got detoured down a really dark path that changed the course of my life. What, what happened? Well, after acting out for several years in my teens, um, you know, one day, just a normal day. I was standing in an alley where I would hang out by myself, and I was standing there smoking a joint at 14 years old in 1987 when the roar of a car kicking up rocks and gravel and dust down an alley screeched to a halt right in front of me. And the guy got out of the car. He walked up to me, and he snatched a joint from my lips, and he looked me in the eyes, and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. And he asked me what my name was. Hmm. And nobody had done that. Everybody had always made fun of my name. And when I told him what it was, when I was waiting for the punchline, instead what he said was, ah, that's Italian. You should be very proud of your heritage. Who who was this guy? His name was Clark Martell, and he was America's first neo-Nazi skinhead leader. Christian Picciolini picks up the story from the TED stage. I started to listen to the rhetoric and believe it. I started to watch very closely as the leaders of this organization would target vulnerable young people who felt marginalized and then draw them in with promises of paradise. For the next eight years, I believed the lies that I had been fed. And though I saw no evidence of it whatsoever, I didn't hesitate 
to blame every Jewish person in the world for what I thought was a white European genocide being promoted by them through a multiculturalist agenda. I blamed people of color for the crime, the violence, and the drugs in the city. And I blamed immigrants for taking jobs from white Americans. For the next eight years, I saw friends die. I saw others go to prison and inflict untold pain on countless victims and their families' lives. And I myself committed acts of violence against people solely for the color of their skin, who they loved, or the God that they prayed to. I stockpiled weapons for what I thought was an upcoming race war. And 25 years ago, I wrote and performed racist music that found its way to the internet decades later and partially inspired a young white nationalist to walk into a sacred Charleston, South Carolina church and senselessly massacre nine innocent people. gave me that identity, community, and, and purpose that I had been searching for. You know, now I was not powerless anymore. I was, uh, you know, I had this perception of power. You know, I went from this place of not being raised a racist, not understanding racism, and in fact being raised as, as the opposite, to this place where I became the most extreme racist that was willing to be violent and take up arms to protect what I, what I thought was dear to me. You know, I think we develop hate as a mechanism, um, you know, to, to really not blame ourselves for, you know, some failures or some voids that we've been unable to fill. Hatred is a powerful force and something we all have the capacity to experience. It's part of being human. It's a feeling embedded deep within us. It's just that some people feel its pull more deeply. So today on the show, we're going to explore what it means to hate, its causes and complications, and how we can eventually find a way to fight against it. And in order to talk about hate, we're going to hear a few stories on today's show that are pretty violent with some graphic descriptions. So just a warning if you're listening with kids. And for Christian Picciolini, the hatred he had for other people, it actually started with the hate he had for himself. If I made people feel worse than I did, well, then that made me feel better about myself. (laughs) And that might have been the only way that I could actually feel good about myself. Many, many other people were doing that, if not all of them, were projecting their own pain, their own trauma, their own unresolved issues onto other people so they didn't have to feel it themselves. But I also think it was about ignorance and isolation uh, and fear. And, um, you know, we were all broken people and misery loves company, so we found each other. So by your mid to late teens, you'd become like a a full-blown neo-Nazi? Yeah, by that time, I'd taken over leadership of this uh, very infamous uh, skinhead group called the Chicago Area Skinheads, which was the first one, because the man who recruited me, Clark Martell, had gone to prison for a a vicious crime against a woman who was a part of this skinhead group. They had seen her at a bus stop with a black man, and um, 
Because of that, they went to her apartment and kicked in her door, and they beat her and pistol-whipped her. And, and then just before they left, they painted a swastika on her wall with her own blood. Fortunately, they were arrested for that. However, unfortunately for me, um, it gave me an opportunity to step into that position, which, you know, I readily took on because I was always searching for that, that feeling of respect. But then my life changed. At 19 years old, I met a girl who was not in the movement, and I fell in love with her. And at 19, we got married, and we had our first son. And when I held my son in my arms in the delivery room that day, not only did I reconnect with some of the innocence that I had lost, but it also began to challenge the very important things that drew me to the movement to begin with. Identity, community, and purpose, things that I had been struggling with as a young boy. And suddenly, I became very confused with who I'd been for the last eight years. So I stepped back as a leader, and instead I opened a record store that I was going to sell white power music in, of course. But I knew that if I was just a racist store selling racist music, that the community would not allow me to be there. So I decided I was going to also stock the shelves with other music. And while the white power music that I was selling was 75% of my gross revenue because people were driving in from all over the country to buy it from the only store that was selling it, I also had customers come in to buy the other music. And eventually, they started to talk to me. And they knew who I was. Hmm. These were people that I'd seen before, people I'd gone to high school with, people who, you know, were strangers to me but knew who I was. And at first, when they came in, I, you know, I really wasn't all that interested in talking to them. And then they kept coming back. Hmm. And uh, over time, you know, of course, the conversations grew and they became, you know, more personal and... I started to recognize that I actually had much more in common with these strangers, these people that I had kept outside of my social circle, uh, than I did with the people that I had surrounded myself with. And I started to receive compassion from the people that I least deserved it from when I least deserved it. And that, to me, was the most powerful, transformative moment. So did, like, getting pulled out of this world of hate, did that, did that happen gradually? Well, you know, I think that over time, as I began to meet the people that I thought I hated, uh, the demonization that had been living in my head, uh, you know, started to become replaced with humanization. Uh, but it was also hope, that I think, that allowed me to see that there was more to my life than what I was involved in. You know, becoming a part of that movement was almost like a person deciding they're going to start committing suicide in daily increments. You know, this is like going on your last drug binge, knowing that you're not going to make it out or going out in a blaze of glory. Uh, and that's kind of how I saw it. I didn't think that there was any future for me. And then suddenly I saw that there was a whole world out there that I didn't even acknowledge. I mean, do you think that it's possible to, I don't know, to reverse the hatred in, in anyone, anyone who was like you? I know it's possible. Huh. For me to deny that would be me denying my own transformation. For anybody, anybody could be pulled out of it? I think anybody can. I think hate is learned, and I think that love is a natural instinct that's suppressed. 
by hate. And I think that we can unlearn hate and reinstate that compassion and that empathy in somebody. Listen, I've worked with some of the people that most would consider monsters, Hmm. people who were, you know, both born into this and grew up to be Klansmen just like their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents. And I can tell you that these are some of the most amazing human beings I've ever had the pleasure to meet and work with and now call friends because they're doing some of the most groundbreaking, amazing things possible. But I also want to acknowledge something. You know, there's something about us as former white extremists getting a second chance. I want to recognize the privilege in that because there are a lot of folks of color who are not getting that same second chance. We've all made mistakes. We've all done things that we're ashamed of. And certainly I've done things that are worse than, uh, you know, the average person. And if I can change, I believe anybody can. Christian Picciolini, he's now the founder of the Free Radicals Project. It's an organization dedicated to helping members and their families disengage from hate groups. You can see Christian's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about why we hate. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible, Capital One. Know when your credit card purchases go through with instant purchase notifications on the Capital One app so you don't miss a purchase, large or small. Technology this convenient could make history. What's in your wallet? Offered by Capital One Bank USA, NA Copyright 2018. When the Supreme Court heard the travel ban case this spring, Donald Trump, president of the United States versus Hawaii, one family's story came up in oral arguments. This is a 10-year-old daughter in Yemen with cerebral palsy who wants to come to the United States to save her life. What happens to that girl and her family? On the next Embedded, on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about why we hate. So I'm assuming you've been hated. Oh. (laughs) Yes, Guy Raz. I think everyone's been hated. Everyone has been the hater. The question is, who takes responsibility for stopping it? This is Sally Cohn. She's a liberal political commentator for CNN. Yes, I'm a lefty. Okay, so by doing that, by putting yourself out there in in the world as a left-wing commentator or commentator at all, like, you are going to get haters. It just comes with the territory, right? Yeah, I mean, it probably doesn't help that I started my lefty commentating on Fox News. Okay, you two could not be further apart in terms of your opinions of Obamacare. Sally, you love it. Betsy, you can't stand it. So I'm You know, that you pairing is going to lead to uh, some hating. That probably combined with the whole lesbian thing. 
maybe add in the Jewish thing. Yeah. Maybe add in the woman thing, the butch thing. I don't, you know, like, this is really a choose your own adventure of hate. It is wrong for anyone to fearmonger by going after That's seniors. That's what the president did. Then why no, is Obama the president was president 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 like Obama? The president, the president sorry, borrowed the, more than four billion. I mean, you have, have to be kind of a certain type of person, like really thick skin. To, to do that, like, I don't think I'd ever go out into the world and tell everybody my opinions because I just don't want to deal with that. Yeah, I'll be honest with you, Guy. I'm not that person. Hmm. Getting hate mail, getting hate tweets, I never had that experience before in my life. It did catch me completely off guard, socked me in the stomach. And it wasn't honestly that I took it personally, I guess. I mean, it was really, I couldn't believe that our society had produced a culture and a climate in which people would go to the trouble of finding the contact information for strangers in order to treat them so badly and be so cruel. That hurt my sense of humanity. So I did what all overly intellectual people do when they have a problem that they want to understand, and I wrote a book. Sally Cohen picks up her story from the TED stage. I wrote a book about hate. Spoiler alert. I'm against it. (laughs) So in trying to understand and solve hate, I read every book and every research study I could find, but I also went and talked to some former Nazis and some former terrorists and some former genocidal killers because I figured if they could figure out how to escape hate, surely the rest of us could. Gordon Alpert, the psychologist who pioneered the study of hate in the early 1900s, he developed what he called a scale of prejudice. At one end are things like genocide and other bias-motivated violence. But at the other end are things like believing that your in-group is inherently superior to some out-group, or you know, avoiding social interaction with those others. I am defining hate in a broad way because I think we have a big problem. And we need to solve all of it, not just the most extremes. What did you learn about the human impulse to hate, like in in sort of writing this book? Do you think we're wired to hate? So that's a great question. I was desperate to find evidence that we're not wired to hate. And it turns out we are. To an extent, right? I mean, that's like you and I, way back when, in our loincloths, we were sitting in the valley banging our rocks together and, you know, some strange people we didn't know in their loincloths came up over the hill and we were afraid of them. And that, over thousands of years, turns into wiring in our brains that makes us fear the other. Mm. But... What's useful here, a metaphor someone uses in the book, is the difference between hardware and software. So that's the hardware that we all have. But who we hate is the software. Hmm. That's been encoded into our brains by society and culture and politics. There's not some part of our DNA that makes us racist. And there's not, uh, you know, some synapse that makes us hate Republicans or hate Democrats. That's the software. That's the programming. Hmm. It's what we've all learned, and that means we can unlearn it. People tell me I'm a nice person to the point where it's part of my personal and professional 
identity, that I'm so nice and uh, able to get along with anyone, even my most fierce opponents. But what no one knows is that I was a bully. When I was 10 years old, um, there was a girl in my class at school named Vicky, and I tormented her mercilessly. Vicky was clearly a troubled kid. She would hit herself and give herself bloody noses, and she had hygiene problems. But instead of helping this girl, who was plainly suffering from hardships in her life, we called her Sticky Vicky. I called her Sticky Vicky. So, Sally, um, full disclosure, I, I know you uh, a, a little bit, and, and I know that you are an extremely kind person. So I know Thanks, this story Ross. isn't who you are. And, and I mean, you were a kid, right? And, and, and lots of kids do mean things. But, but I guess this thing you did to Vicky, it's, it's always been in the back of your mind. Yeah, it, um, I mean, it was there. It was in my mind, but sort of pushed to the edges. Yeah. And it was when I was at Fox and really started getting hate mail and sort of had these... Like, who, what kind of person would pick on someone for no good reason? And it was as though the edges of my mind sort of knocked on my conscience. And I said, oh, hey, wait, you, you're that kind of person. You've done it too. And it started to haunt me more and more that I thought of myself as a good person. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is good people do horrible things. Especially kids. Especially kids, but especially adults too. You know, one of the things that struck me in the book the most was when a philosopher said to me, you know, we don't have mass atrocities in the world because of a handful of psychopaths. There aren't enough psychopaths in Rwanda or Germany or Serbia. We have mass atrocities because masses of people participate in them. Yeah. And we tend to think those are different people than us than the good people. And part of it is breaking down this idea that there are good people and bad people. There are people, and we can do good things and we can do bad things. Yeah. And the problem is right now we have too many excuses, even in small, petty ways that seemingly you know, aren't that bad, but add up to a culture and a climate that is cruel and allows greater inhumanities and injustices to fester. And we don't see ourselves as complicit in that. What do you think the opposite of, of hate is? I don't think it's love. Not in the sense that we tend to understand it anyway, because you don't actually have to love someone to not hate them. You don't even have to like them. What I think we have to understand is, in spite of our differences and our disagreements, we share a common humanity. And recognizing that connection, promoting policies and institutional changes and, and, and structures that respect that connection and treat people equally is the opposite of hate. Let me give you just one example in the West Bank. When Bassam Araman was 16 years old, he tried to blow up an Israeli military convoy with a grenade. He failed, fortunately, 
but he was still sentenced to seven years in prison. When he was in prison, they showed a film about the Holocaust. Now, up until that point, Bassam had thought the Holocaust was mostly a myth. But when he saw what really happened, he broke down crying. And eventually, after prison, Bassam went on to get a master's degree in Holocaust studies. And he founded an organization where former Palestinian combatants and Israeli combatants come together, try to find common ground. By his own account, Bassam used to hate Israelis. But through knowing Israelis and learning their stories and working together for peace, he overcame his hate. And Bassam says he still doesn't hate Israelis, even after the Israeli military shot and killed his 12-year-old daughter, Abir, while she was walking to school. Bassam even forgave the soldier who killed his daughter. You know, I'm gonna say some. I'm gonna say something that might um, upset people listening, and maybe even you, Sally. Which is, I was really moved by the story of Bassam, but I also I have a hard time identifying with it. I mean, his child was killed, and he forgave the soldier who killed his daughter, and sort of flushed hatred out of his system, which is remarkable and, of course, laudable. But what does that get Bassam? Um, I mean, I have the same, I think, struggle you do. I don't think I could do that. Yeah, right. In an even more tangible way, I had the experience of being in Rwanda, sitting with a woman who, a Tutsi woman who had invited into her home her neighbor, a man she calls her friend, who had murdered her husband and children. And to watch her talk with him, laugh with him, welcome him in her home, serve him tea. I don't know that I'm capable of that. There is also a part of it that feels unjust, that it feels it's asking too much of those from whom so much has been taken, those who've been oppressed and victimized. What I walk away with is we, as people, are capable not only of brutality and cruelty and injustice, but also compassion and kindness and forgiveness. That to me is remarkable and endlessly hopeful. The entire time I was uh, traveling around the Middle East and Rwanda and across the United States hearing these unbelievable stories of people and communities who had left entire histories of hate behind, I was still looking for Vicky. It was so hard to find her, in fact, that I hired a private investigator, and he found her. A year after I began my journey, I wrote Vicky an apology. And a few months later, she wrote back. I'm not gonna lie, I wanted to be forgiven. I wasn't. She offered me sort of conditional forgiveness. What she wrote was, messages such as yours cannot absolve you of your past actions. The only way to do that is to improve the world, prevent others from behaving in similar ways, and foster compassion. And Vicky's right, which is why I'm here. Thank you. Sally Cohn, she's a political commentator for CNN and author of the book, The Opposite of Hate, a field guide to repairing our humanity. You can see Sally's full talk at TED.com.
Uh, so can you can you go ahead and introduce yourself, please? Uh, my name is Dylan Marin, and I host and produce the podcast Conversations with People Who Hate Me. And we'll come back to Dylan's podcast in a minute. But to understand why he started it, you have to first understand the kind of videos Dylan makes and posts online. Yeah, so for the last few years, um, I've made a lot of video series that specifically deal with social justice issues. So I made a video series called Every Single Word, where I edited down popular movies to only the words spoken by people of color. Mr. Vance would like to see you in his office. Son, you're going to have to exit the vehicle. As a way to respond to the transphobic bathroom bills, I I hosted and produced an interview series called Sitting in Bathrooms with Trans People. Welcome back to Sitting in Bathrooms with Trans People. I am here with trans icon Kate Bornstein. I also created a satirical series called Unboxing, where I satirized the real unboxing videos where YouTubers you know, crack open the latest electronic gadget yes. and instead unboxed intangible ideologies. Here's a product as old as the country that made it. Today, I'm unboxing the mistreatment of Native Americans. This product is actually really durable. And Just because a lot of those videos went viral, naturally, you're going to get people who really don't like it. And of course, Dylan started to see a lot of internet hate. Here's Dylan Marin on the TED stage. Um, I was called everything, from beta to snowflake, and of course, the ever-popular cuck. So beta, for those of you unfamiliar, is shorthand online lingo for beta male. But let's be real, I wear pearl earrings, and my fashion aesthetic is rich white woman running errands, so I'm not angling to be an alpha. <laughs> Doesn't totally work. Now, Snowflake is a put-down for people who are sensitive and believe themselves to be unique, and I'm a millennial and an only child, so duh. <laughs> Let's take a look at some of this negativity in action. Um, sometimes it's direct, like Marcos, who wrote, you're everything I hate in a human being. Others are more concise. Like Donovan, who wrote Gay Wad Fag. Now, I do need to point out, Donovan is not wrong, okay? In fact, he's right on both counts, so credit where credit is due. Thank you, Donovan. Uh, it's fun to talk about these messages now, and it's cathartic to laugh at them, but I can tell you that it really does not feel good to receive them. So over time, I developed an unexpected coping mechanism. Because most of these messages I received were through social media, I could often click on the profile picture of the person who sent them and learn everything about them. I could see pictures they were tagged in, posts they'd written, memes they'd shared, and somehow seeing that it was a human on the other side of the screen made me feel a little better. Still, that didn't feel like enough. So I called some of them, only the ones I felt safe talking to, with a simple opening question. Why did you write that? So you were attempting to understand these people who were writing such hateful things to you. And then I guess you recorded some of these conversations, and, and that kind of grew into a, a podcast? Yeah. I actually, like, the first person I spoke to um, was a guy named Josh, who had written to tell me that I was a moron and that 
being gay was a sin, also that I was the reason this country was dividing itself. Hmm. But just hearing him and hearing how all the ways that he's a you know full three-dimensional human was like, oh my God, I want to do this with so many people. Josh, you said that you're about to graduate high school. How is high school for you? It was hell. Really? <laughs> when you're different, then you're not well-liked. And I'm a little bit chubbier than a lot of people, and people seem to judge me before they get to know me. I mean, I also just want to let you know, Josh, I was bullied in high school, too. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that we're similar, or do you feel like that's that's an unfair assertion? I think we're similar. We have similar lies, but very different Belief. You're bullied, I'm bullied, but it's not the And same just because we share that common experience does not mean that suddenly the world is healed. But it does mean, like, maybe there are more people who wrote a very negative comment, and they are willing to talk. In just a moment, how simply listening to his haters became Dylan's way to fight hate itself. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible, Smartwater. Smartwater aims to go beyond what others are doing. Taking inspiration from the clouds themselves, Smartwater one-ups them by adding electrolytes for a clean, crisp taste. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. This is Peter Sagal. When we began Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we dreamed that our rude jokes would be, in the end, the appropriate way to talk about the news. And look... It happened. Listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, why we hate. And we were just hearing from Dylan Marin. He started a podcast where he talks to people who've written some pretty hateful things about him online. My guests get to dictate their own levels of anonymity. I'm not calling them and secretly recording them and then releasing it because I want to be super clear. This is not a podcast to expose you. This is a podcast where you and I are going to have nuanced conversation about, we'll start with why you wrote what you wrote me, Mm. but then let's go into other stuff. So Bradley, what urged you to write me that initial message? I'd actually messaged a few different popular people on Facebook, and I was really struggling really heavily with um, depression at the time. And so I was at a point where it's like, hey, does my voice even count? Does my voice even matter? I mean, Bradley, I totally relate to that. It's kind of difficult sometimes to, it's more difficult to come out as not a liberal than it is to come out as gay nowadays. Hmm. As a member of the LGBT community, I would disagree, but I'm also not a member of the right-leaning community, so I've never had to um, tearfully tell right. my parents that I identify as right-leaning, <laughs> you know? Okay, you got me there. Then Is there anything that you're going to do differently now that we've had this conversation? I tell you what, I'm going to listen because um, it's important. 
Before I started this project, I thought that the real way to bring about change was to shut down opposing viewpoints through epically worded video essays and comments and posts. But I soon learned those were only cheered on by the people who already agreed with me. Sometimes the most subversive thing you could do was to actually speak with the people you disagreed with and not simply at them. Now, in every one of my calls, I always ask my guests to tell me about themselves. And empathy, it turns out, is a key ingredient in getting these conversations off the ground. But it can feel very vulnerable to be empathizing with someone you profoundly disagree with. So I established a helpful mantra for myself: empathy is not endorsement. I also want to be super clear about something: this is not a prescription for activism. I understand that some people don't feel safe talking to their detractors, and others feel so marginalized that they justifiably don't feel that they have any empathy to give. I totally get that. This is just what I feel well suited to do. So, what, what, what's the goal? Is the goal to, to humanize them, to get them to stop hating you, to come to an understanding? Is there any goal? Yeah, I mean, the goal is to see if conversation is possible. Hmm. And often it is. I think we all have the capacity to hate, and I think that conversation, dialogue, is a way to disarm that hate. Yeah.、Um, am I under any delusion that this podcast will single-handedly heal a very divided country? Not at all, <laughs> you know. Like, I don't think that like this is the only way we're going to get out of this. But anyone who goes on the internet will see a negative comment, a negative tweet, a negative post. I just want to see if that post, if that comment, if that message can be the start of a conversation rather than the end of one. And I have found that in many cases, it really can be. You know, I've reached out to a lot of people for this podcast, and some have politely declined. Others have read my message and ignored it. Some have blocked me automatically when I sent the invitation. And one guy actually agreed to do it, and then five minutes into the call, hung up on me. I'm also aware that this talk will appear on the internet, and with the internet comes comment sections, and with comment sections, inevitably comes hate. So as you are watching this talk, you can feel free to call me whatever you'd like. You can call me a gaywad, a snowflake, a cuck, a beta, or everything wrong with liberalism. But just know that if you do, I may ask you to talk. And if you refuse or agree and hang up on me, then maybe, babe, the snowflake is you. Thank you so much, Dylan Marin. He's the host of the podcast Conversations with People Who Hate Me. You can see his entire talk. At TED.com. On the show today, why we hate. Ideas on some of the causes and complications of hatred. I think hate solves real problems that people have in a way that makes it very useful to people. This is writer and journalist Anand Girdadas. I think hate can give aimless people purpose. It can take a life of petty frustrations and setbacks that are suddenly externalized through hate into kind of grandeur and a sense of mission. I think hate often provides a cover for fear and pain that 
puts a, a Band-Aid on them and, and puts a certain face to the world that is appealing to the hater, that is more compelling to them than being a, a person who moves to the world unsure and uncertain and feeling mocked. Part of what we have to think about when you want to have a world with less hate in it is to actually understand what it's doing for people. And that's kind of what Anand has done. He spent two years researching one man who committed a series of hate crimes after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Mark Stroman, a married father of four, who had been in and out of prison and had bounced between jobs, was watching the aftermath of 9-11 unfold. Mark Stroman claimed he went on a hate-filled rampage in retaliation for the September 11th terrorist attack. So he went to three Dallas-area convenience stores and shot three clerks who he thought were Muslims. I did what I thought I had to do. I did what every other American wanted to do, but he didn't have the nerve. Stroman shot three people. Two of them died. The only surviving victim was a Bangladeshi minimart clerk, Raisadin Buyan, who goes by the name Race. And several years after the incident, Race spoke to NPR about what happened. He came to the station with a gun pointing towards me. He asked me, where are you from? And I said, excuse me. As soon as I spoke, I felt the sensation of a million bees stinging my face and then heard an explosion. I looked down at the floor and saw blood was pouring like an open faucet from the right side of my head. And I remember I heard myself screaming, Mom. I was crying and I was asking God, give me a second chance. I don't want to die today. And I promise if you give me a second chance, I will dedicate my life for others. You know, after race was shot, the day after admitting him, the hospital that had taken him in discharged him, even though his eye was caked shut with blood and he could barely speak wow. because he didn't have health insurance. Uh, he had 30-something pellets in his face. Mm. He had a lot of trauma and PTSD, and he went deep into medical debt and eventually kind of hustled and found some way to get a job at an olive garden. And from there, finally, he kind of started taking some IT classes on the side and eventually hustled his way into that profession, doing server and database management, which had been his dream. Wow. So you have this guy, this, this guy who's an immigrant, going through the worst of all possible circumstances, and he overcomes it. He achieves what he came to the U.S. to do. Yeah, I think that's right. So, so what did you find out about, about the man who shot race, about Mark Stroman? Like, where did his, his hatred come from? You know, what I tried to do when I was trying to understand why did he commit this series of hate crimes after 9-11, I had the benefit of his having left a lot of writing, letters, um, later published blog posts from when he was on death row. And in this language, I was able to kind of piece together his hate outlook. Hmm. And there was a sense of kind of being a small, bewildered man in a world that didn't have space for him. Yeah. And so then there are these statements of belonging. You know, I like motorcycles and naked women and call himself, you know, Texas loud, Texas proud. This almost over-the-top Americana narrative. Hmm. Um, and it was all this bluster and this kind of white, resentment um, kind of gave him a team. Uh, it gave him a, a kind of virtual squad. Anand Girdadas picks up the story from the TED stage. 
Mark Stroman always wrestled with demons. He entered the world through the three gateways that doomed so many young American men. Bad parents, bad schools, bad prisons. His mother told him regretfully as a boy that she'd been just $50 short of aborting him. Sometimes that little boy would be at school and he'd suddenly pull a knife on his classmates. Sometimes that same little boy would be at his grandparents, tenderly feeding horses. He was getting arrested before he shaved, first juvenile, then prison. He became a casual white supremacist. And then before long, he found himself on death row. Strangely, death row was the first institution that left Stroman better. His old influences quit him. The people entering his life were virtuous and caring, pastors, journalists, pen pals. They listened to him, prayed with him, helped him question himself. He finally faced the hatred that had defined his life. He read Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor, and regretted his swastika tattoos. He found God. Then one day in 2011, Ten years after his crimes, Stroman received news. One of the men he'd shot, the survivor, was fighting to save his life. That's just unbelievable. That race, I mean, the, the guy Stroman shot in the face decided to not only help him, but to actually fight to get him off death row. Like, how did that happen? It was a long process. And... Over time, as his condition kind of grew less taxing day by day, he started to have a feeling that he owed the world something. Back in 2001, he'd kind of looked up at the sky thinking he was dying, saying to his God, if you save my life now, I will dedicate the rest of my life to helping others. And what occurred to him in, I think, 2008 or 9 was he was ready to turn towards that promise. And he kind of came to this idea that the greatest intervention that he could make in the cycle of hatred and vengeance was to commit a symbolic act. And how would he intervene? By forgiving Stroman publicly in the name of Islam and its doctrine of mercy. Yet Reisuddin's mercy was inspired not only by faith, a newly minted American citizen he had come to believe that Stroman was the product of a hurting America that couldn't just be lethally injected away. This immigrant begging America to be as merciful to a native son as it had been to an adopted one. In the mini-mart all those years earlier, not just two men, but two Americas collided. An America that still dreams still strives, still imagines that tomorrow can build on today. And an America that has resigned to fate, buckled under stress and chaos, lowered expectations, and ducked into the oldest of refuges, the tribal fellowship of one's own narrow kind. And it was race within, despite being a newcomer, despite being attacked, who belonged to that republic of dreams. And Stroman, who belonged to that other wounded country, despite being born with the privilege of a native white man. On July 20th, 2011, 
Right after a sobbing racer then testified in defense of Stroman's life, Stroman was killed by lethal injection. After the execution, Racer then reached out to Stroman's eldest daughter, Amber, an ex-convict and an addict, and offered his help. He wanted her, too, to have a second chance. That's amazing. I mean, here's a question, right? Is, is he a unicorn? I mean, is, this is rare, right? I mean, this doesn't happen. People don't, aren't always able to forgive people who committed such a, an act of hatred towards them. I mean, it, it, it requires a, a tremendous amount of courage. And I, I mean, the story you tell is amazing, but I wonder if it's more aspirational rather than, you know, than, than, than a common story of forgiveness. You know, I, it, it certainly there's nothing common about it. I think what I'm trying to do is explore the origins of this kind of hatefulness and also to explore this question of how does one forgive? What is forgiveness? However, you're right. Race is a unicorn. I do not think that everybody in America who's on the wrong end of racial supremacy should forgive. On the contrary, I think there are wars to be fought and won still. I think right now the United States is being governed by a kind of middle-grade ambivalent hatefulness that is too ashamed to call itself hatefulness but that very clearly is marked by hatefulness at its core. I think what we could take from the unicorn is the larger idea that if those of us who live in and celebrate the kind of new pluralist America that is coming, if we don't attend to the fates and fortunes of the people who will lose from that transformation, who will lose a little bit of a sense of who they are, will lose a cultural dividend they got from being white and a man. If we don't attend to them and we just kind of wait for them to no longer be here, um, I think the next many decades are going to be a very, very rough ride. If, on the other hand, we who want that new America to come can fight for it and fight for it with great conviction, but fight for it also with a spirit of mercy that, as I often think about that the loss of what is undeserved, even though it is undeserved, is hard. We might be able to salvage the very dark moment that we find ourselves in. That's Anand Girdaras. His book, The True American, chronicles the stories of Race Buyan and Mark Stroman. You can watch his entire talk at TED.com. I was at Franklin Roosevelt's side On the night before he died He said one world must come out of World War II Not a fool Yankee, Russian, white or tan He said a man is still a man We're all on one road We're only passing through Hey, thanks so much for listening to our episode, Why We Hate. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, and Deba Motasham, with help from Daniel Shukin and Lawrence Wu. Our intern is Megan Shellong. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. 
I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Let's solve it. Let's solve it.